in one of those days. So the reality is we are exhausted. <laughs> um, so it began Friday night as uh, about 100 leaders from all over the country um, converged on Goldsboro and on Hydrant Church. And that's why it's set up like it is right now. There are um, currently extra chairs in the room and there was a whole other row up here in the front. As, uh, and practically every seat was full for um, three main sessions, general sessions in here, and three breakouts that were spread out all over the building with leaders who helped us to rethink what it is to be small church. And, and it began because of you and what God has been doing here. And over the last year, as you have prayed and dreamed and worked, and, and some of you were, were watching kids so that your spouses could be here, and we got to um, see, they, they were here, and you were a part of it. Some of you baked cookies, lots and lots of homemade cookies. Some of you were here making 80s decorations and putting books together two and three and four times because I kept messing them up, and we, um, we had those who were painting in the office and in the cafe and pulling bushes, and everybody was a part of this. It was something we did together, whether you were actually here during the weekend or not, and you're seeing some of the pictures, and we'll have more that'll go out online as our photographer that was here, photographers, and our videographer gets us that footage. We'll get that out to everyone, but I wanted you to hear, I've got uh, three folks who are just going to share a couple of minutes about what it meant to them to be a part of serving at this. So if you three would go ahead and come up, and James, I'm going to let you go first. He complained about not getting to go first in the first service. So, so me and my family have been coming to Hydrant for about two years now. And, you know, ever since the first time we walked in the door, you just get that sense of family. Like, it just feels like home. I mean, everything from the doors to the parking lot, I mean, the kids, I mean, it's just, it just feels like home. And through this Rethink Small, the ideas and stuff that were talked about will go to all these other churches. So we don't know where they're going, where they'll be affected at, you know, other states. You've got next year, five years, ten years down the road, there could be a church launched or relaunched and someone could walk into that church for the first time and get that same feeling that we do every week when we come here. And I just thought that was really cool. Yeah. Fantastic. I don't want to follow him either. Hmm. Um, so I've got to, I got to do the parking lot and I got to see everybody as they got here. Um, as soon as they got here and they all had just big smiles on their faces, just waiting to, hear what Rethink was going to give them and what Tim had planned for them. And, and it was amazing to kind of start the, the conference with them and then end the conference with them. We got to do worship with them before they all left. And um, it was the most amazing feeling I, I've ever felt, just to feel everything that they felt. Um, and they brought it into this room, and we all experienced that together. Um, and and I, like, there's no words for it. It's just, it was Good. very appreciative. Yeah, thank you. Fantastic. So uh, Rethink Small was probably 100 plus leaders uh, that came here. And what was awesome was that it wasn't only pastors, it was actually leaders. And the, the sense, the theme, the, the atmosphere 
was maybe some of them were on the last time. Maybe some of them were thinking about that maybe their ministry didn't mean anything, or maybe maybe they, maybe they they're not doing the calling right or, what, or or answering what God's telling them to do. And and you could kind of see just a little bit of something as they walked in that they that they they were yearning for something, mm-hmm. that they wanted something. And before it all started, we we come up here and, and Tim did a rally. And in the rally, he didn't give us no training. He didn't give us any extra things that he wanted us to do. He just said, hey, let's go be who we are. Let's go be Hydrant. And whoever walks on here, we're going to love them right where they are, and we're going to point them to Jesus. And that's what we got to do. And what we saw was God do something extraordinary through ordinary people. Mm -hmm. Just people who volunteer and serve and love Jesus and love others. And want these guys who come here to reconnect their passion with their ministry in the small church. And that's what we got to see. As they walked, here, walked out of here on Saturday evening, they were revitalized, rejuvenated. Old school, they, they, they went through revival. You want to go old school with us one time. But that's what they hit. And there was hope that wasn't there. Maybe it was when they got that hope of when they first accepted Jesus or accepted the calling to the ministry. And when they walked out of here, you could see that same hope in their faces as, as they walked out of here. And that's what Revive, uh, Rethink Small meant to me. All right. Thanks, man. I appreciate that. So I do want to share with you real quick, uh, Dr. Wayne Schmidt, the general superintendent of the Wesleyan Church. We are a Wesleyan Church. We don't um, talk about it. We don't necessarily look like a Wesleyan Church. But it is the root of our theology and the way we do things and who we are. And as a part of that, I don't know how to describe it to people because there's not another Wesleyan church for an hour in any direction. And so people aren't really sure what that means or what a general superintendent is. And he is the leader for all 16 to 1800 Wesleyan churches in the U.S. and Canada. And um, he was with us in the first service this morning and he shared his reflections on his time during Rethink and here this morning. And I just want to tell you the two things that stood out to him that he shared in the first service. The first was the hospitality. The pure joy and acceptance and place for every person who walks through the door, regardless of where they come from, their background, their struggles, their place in life. It's a place of hospitality and love. And because of that, he said... He said, really what I noticed that the source of that is not just that the people who attend Hydrant are good, nice people, but there's a hunger for God in this place. And there are people who worship and read and engage and who are listening and want to be all that God created them to be. And in that, it overflows in this love for others and those were the things that he had to say and remark about and um, already he's headed back to the airport and shared, posted on social media about the inspiration and the joy of being in this place with you guys. And so um, I wanted you to hear what it meant to him and what he saw as he participated in this weekend with us. Um, we're going to pray and jump into this message because the, the reality is I have now um, stood up five times in the last 48 hours to teach for anywhere from 15 to 45 minutes every time. So I'm on fumes and caffeine. Um, thankfully, if you were here last week, it's not lots of water, and I won't need to leave to use the restroom in the middle of a service. Can you believe it? Small church. Wonderful. So 
Someone offered me some Depends this morning, so I know what it'll be like when I'm an old pastor. Uh, Let's pray, because clearly I need it. Father, you're good and faithful and remarkable, and our desire is not just to rethink small church, but that we would rethink our lives according to your pattern, rethink the values, the things that we hold dear so that we would see what you hold dear and who you made us to be. So we ask this in in your name, and by your strength, and with your guidance. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So we've been in this series called Misfits, and it's not so much that we are called to be misfits, or that we should try to be misfit in the world, or different, but the reality is that when we follow Jesus and value what Jesus values, we're not going to fit into the world around us very well. We're going to end up looking different because we value something different. And I, we've used this diagram, and if you've been here, you're tired of seeing it, but hopefully, hopefully you've got it memorized and you could come up here and do it. But I'm going to show you one more time what tends to happen in our world today. We tend to pursue success or happiness, right? We are told to go after success, to dream big, to achieve, to give ourselves to our career, especially in our 20s and 30s, and, and that this is this the sense of validation and purpose and meaning is when we achieve success. Now, for some of us, what we don't necessarily realize is that what we're actually after is this idea of happiness, satisfaction, self-fulfillment, and for some when they fail to reach whatever level of a success or expectation that they feel like they should have, they kind of drop out of the success race and say, well, I'm just going to do what makes me happy. I'm just going to do what makes me feel good, what what I want to do and what I will find happiness in. And we tend to start to sacrifice things for success and happiness. Usually the first thing we sacrifice is, is relationships. We sacrifice relationships. In our 20s and 30s, we delay dating and we delay looking for a spouse. We delay any interest in any of those things so that we can pursue success. We, we ignore our need for community and connection because we're working. How, much, how, many, how many marriages end Because somebody's not happy anymore, as if marriage was designed or its purpose was to make you happy. And we we, um, abandon all of these relationships in pursuit of success and happiness. And in addition to that, we have a, a, a tendency in our world today, when we pursue success and happiness, to sacrifice not just relationships, but our character. To achieve the success or happiness. We'll tell one little light lie. You know if it will get us out of trouble. Or move us ahead. Or make the deal come together. And we tell one little lie. That becomes two and five and ten. Or if we're, we're struggling to feel happy today. We'll look for something. Some kind of temporary distraction. Right? Some kind of, some kind of medication. That will make us feel happy for a little while. And one drink becomes two, becomes four, becomes ten. And we feel 
less pain for a little bit, or we we spend more, or we work out more, or we do whatever we have to do, sacrificing these things that we believe should be true about us, until one day we wake up and we look, and in our pursuit of success or happiness, we're no longer who we want to be. And we, we look in the mirror and we can't look ourselves in the eye without, without feeling like we need to drop our heads because we're not happy with who we see. We don't even know how we got here. But it happened one little step at a time. In that pursuit of success or happiness, what we end up ultimately sacrificing is our connection to the Creator. We sacrifice our souls, our very selves, the, things that, the thing that makes us who we are. It's a, a, Paul wrote in the book of Colossians that everything lives and has its breath and meaning in Jesus, in the Creator. And the world around us today says it's worth these sacrifices if you can be successful or happy. To get what you want, to get what you have to get what will make you feel good, to deal with the pain, do whatever you have to do to get here. So what happens is in our 20s and 30s, we pursue success, we pursue happiness, sacrifice all of these things, and then we wake up in our early 40s and we realize doesn't really mean a whole lot without people. We start looking for relationships and we run through one, two, three marriages because we sacrificed our character. No longer are we trustworthy. No longer are we the kind of person who values people. We've used them for so long to get what we want that we don't know how to treat them any other way. And so we used a spouse to make us happy. We used a friend to, to get us somewhere, and now we can't gather people around us. And we spend our, our 40s and our 50s trying to build relationships, but we realize that our character is broken, and we can't build relationships without character. So in our 60s, we come back around, and we try to get forgiveness, and we try to rebuild relationships and try to mend what we destroyed, but so many times it's too late. The wounds are too deep. The pains are so hard, it's hard to get back there. And we can't fix ourselves. In our 70s, we wake up one day and say, maybe there is a God. Maybe there is a God. And that's why I think the small churches, especially small churches that are mostly older, matter. If they're doing it right and reaching to the seniors of a community, then what they're able to do is to reach right to those people who are finally coming to a place of, maybe there is a God. And they are able to help answer that question and help them come back around. Because the actual pattern, we see Paul writes in Romans chapter 2, that we are to no longer conform to the pattern of the world, but to be transformed by the renewing, by the rethinking. And that begins in connection. We realize that life begins in our connection with God. Everything begins there. It is our center, our purpose, our identity. The problem is when we come to God, we're like, God, you're great, you're good, I love you, fix my life. I need you to fix my life now. I need you to fix my job. You've met my boss, right? I know you said you love everyone, but you've met my boss. Or God, my relationship, my spouse, you've met her. You've met my kids, they got a lot of my spouse in them. I need you to fix this. He says, listen, we can get to that, but it's going to start somewhere else. (laughs) He says, 
why don't we why don't we talk about this selfishness? Why don't we talk about this pride? Why don't we talk about this anger? Let, let's, let's dig into this addiction. And he starts to look into our character and invite us to let him work inside of us and begins to transform our character. We become trustworthy and honorable. We become the kind of person that doesn't use people anymore. We value people. We want the best for others. And this connection with Christ begins to do a work in us. And one of the values here at Hydrate is that the Holy Spirit does the fixing. Right? Like, I can't fix you. I don't know what God wants to do in you. And every time I might try to fix you, I'm just going to get in the way of the Spirit. Because listen, I can't fix me. I certainly am not going to be able to fix anyone else. So we let God do that. And when we come to Him in this connection first, He begins to do that work in us. That healing, that transforming, that integrity begins to develop. We begin to value people and build relationships that last. Enter into a community of trust and hope and strength. It's a place where we learn to love well. And then we realize that every bit of success and not happiness, but joy that we experience in life is connected to other people. Every opportunity you've ever gotten came from someone else. It came because someone believed in you, someone trusted you, someone gave you a chance. It came because someone taught you something you didn't know. We all come to Christ because someone else told the story. Someone else helped us believe. Someone else helped us struggle through our questions. And it's those relationships, we learn to value those, and they lead to the ability of competence, and we didn't discover joy, and it really comes for a circle when we give it all back to God. And so this makes us not really fit in the world. When we're pursuing first and foremost to do whatever God's asking us to do, instead of pursuing success and happiness, you're not going to fit. The world is going this way, and you're going to go that way. And you're going to get off of those cycles and it's going to be hard. It's going to look different. And so we've been kind of unpacking what that looks like in, in some key areas of life. We looked first at our spiritual lives. And then last week we looked at what God expects of us when it comes to our bodies. And we talked about biblical motivation for the care of our bodies. Not like to look good or feel good. And I told you that for me, there came this moment when my kids were little and God was asking me to be a dad who could get on the floor and play and a dad who would be out playing ball, a dad who could teach and love and have the energy to keep up with them. But I was 50 pounds heavier than I am now. And at the time, he had to look at me and say, oh, your, your spirit is willing, but your flesh is weak. And it, had, it was my fault. I'm not talking about the, the, the physical limitations of our humanity. I'm talking about things I had done to myself, like shovel too much food in, <laughs> not exercise, eat when I was hungry, eat when I wasn't hungry, eat when I was sad because I was sad, eat when I was happy because we're celebrating, and eat every other time too. And I never wanted to hear that again, and he began to do a work in me and invite me into a different way. Because we want to compartmentalize everything, especially spirituality, right? We're like, okay, I've got my spiritual box. This is your place, Jesus. You live in my heart. And we're going to come and open up my heart at church once a week for you know, an hour. If you come here, an hour and a half. And we're, um, 
we're going to just kind of let it in, let that out, and then we'll close it back up and go on with the rest of our week. The problem is it doesn't work that way. In fact, we are these whole people, and all of these things work together like the spokes of a bicycle wheel, right? Like our, our relationship with God and our relationships with others and our work and our finances and our physical health and our emotional health, they're all like spokes in this bicycle wheel. Now, I don't know how familiar you are with this, but I, want, I used to ride motorcycles, and I, and I had this... Um, uh, 1500cc cruiser. It's a pretty big bike, and I loved to ride it. Its wheels had spokes in them, and one of the spokes got loose. And it wasn't a big deal when one was loose until it started to cause others to get loose. When one's loose, it makes other spokes get loose, and when multiple spokes get loose, the wheel wobbles. That's not a good thing on a motorcycle. Because it doesn't take long before a wobbling wheel makes you crash. So you got to take that wheel in for them to work on it. And what they'll do is they'll start tightening up all of the spokes. And when they get it just right and the wheel rolls straight, they say the wheel is rolling true again. And in our lives, when the spokes, the relationship with God, and the relationship with others, our finances and our health and our emotional health and our spiritual life, when all of those spokes are tight, our lives roll true and we begin to become who we were created to be. And it gets a lot easier to answer questions like, God, what are you asking me to do? Because until then, what he tends to say is, why don't you start with what I've already told you? That one's hard, I know. But so, to make it easy, because nobody wants to listen to a four-hour message, we kind of split these up. And we started with spirituality, and then we, then we talked about physical. And today, I want to talk about what I believe is the number one thing that gets loose in our wheel first. The number one thing that has a tendency to kick us out of this cycle. Our emotional health. See, the, the, the design of our bodies, our biology is this. Everything you touch, everything you see, everything you smell, everything you hear enters into your body and then moves through your body as electrical pulses. It goes first to your spine and then up through your spine into your brain. It moves through the limbic part of your brain and then to your frontal lobe. Your frontal lobe is where rational thinking happens. The limbic part of your brain is where emotions happen. So everything you hear, everything you see, everything you smell, everything you touch, everything you experience in this world passes through your emotions before it gets to the rational part of your brain. And studies show that two-thirds of us respond emotionally before the impulse ever gets to the rational part of our brain. Only, in fact, 36% of those tested can identify what they feel at any given time. And if you can't identify it, you can't properly respond to it. Right? There are five key emotions that everyone feels. Happiness, sadness, 
Anger, fear, and shame. All the other emotions you might name are kind of intensity levels of those five emotions. And when we can't name them, we can't respond to them. And unfortunately in the church, we don't talk about this. And we just kind of heap on shame. And we generate fear as a way to manipulate. We use things like hell to scare people. We use judgment and expectation to kind of manipulate. We, we, we condemn sadness and anger as some kind of unholy thing. So all you're left with is the expectation of being happy all the time. And no one is happy all the time. It's not possible. It's not how we were designed. Emotions are part of how we are created. But if we ignore and deny and suppress, then we're in trouble. Because they're there, and they all, what's in you always finds a way out. What's in you always finds a way out. We have to learn to name and manage them. And this is a problem for us. It's a problem. It's a challenge. It's something that takes practice to do. And this is not really a new problem. We're kind of becoming more aware of it. Business world is talking about it more, that kind of thing. But it's not a new problem. If we go to the, to the book of 1 Kings and we go to chapter 19, which I invite you to use your phone or, or to use one of the Bibles in the chairs. We're going to be in 1 Kings chapter 19. It's near the beginning of the Bible. And in 1 Kings 19, we meet a man named Elijah. But we really kind of mean before that, but... In chapter 18, he has like the day of days, if you're a pastor, prophet kind of guy, right? Like, it's his job to call Israel into following God. And Israel has gotten off chasing this other God named Baal. He's a God of fertility. God is supposed to make things grow and give you children and all of that. And they're pursuing Baal. And Elijah's job is to call them back. And he has this kind of showdown on the mountain with the prophets of Baal, right? So they're both on the mountain. They both set up an offering, and they say, here's what's going to happen. We're going to each take turns praying, and whichever God sends down fire from heaven to consume the offering wins. And Elijah's kind of funny. He's like, you guys go first. And so the prophets of Baal, all 400 of them, are dancing and singing and praying and cutting themselves and Elijah's mocking them. Hey, hey, yell louder. I think he's in the bathroom. No lie, that's what he says. I think he's using the bathroom. Maybe he's on vacation. And nothing happens. Elijah says, God, I want everybody to know who you are. Fire from heaven. Like, that's a day for a pastor. I've been doing this for almost 20 years. Never been able to call down fire from heaven. That's a good day. That's a good day. And so he says to Israel, choose today who you're going to serve. And remember, this God can throw down fire from heaven. <laughs> and they choose Israel. And, and he then slays the enemy. 400 prophets of Baal gone. He wins. He's like champion, butt-kicking prophet of the year in this moment, right? So then we come to verse 1 of chapter 19. King Ahab watches all this happen and he goes home to his wife Jezebel. 
and tells her everything Elijah had done, including the way he had killed her prophets of Baal. She brought them there. They were hers. And so she sent this message to Elijah. May the gods strike me down and even kill me if by this time tomorrow I've not killed you just as you killed them. Elijah was afraid and fled for his life. I don't understand that whole line just right there. This is the guy who called down fire from heaven. Like he prayed it. Why didn't he just pray it down on Jezebel and end it? Or just say, okay, Jezebel, I'll do your funeral. Like what was he afraid of? He just killed 400 prophets, called down fire from heaven that consumed the, the offering, the rocks, water that was poured on top of it all. This, and yet he's afraid and runs. And, he, and, and here's where we see this emotional unhealth, this dysfunction start to happen. He said, it says then that he, he went to Beersheba, a town in Judah, but he left his servant there. He left the one there to help him. And he goes on alone into the wilderness. When we're in an unhealthy place, we run and we leave the people behind who are there to help us, who care about us and want to be with us. And he leaves them behind and he travels all day, travels all day. He runs and he runs and he runs and he runs until he collapses. Second thing, I know that people have a tendency to do too much. Too much. Ignoring physical, emotional, spiritual limitations and pushing beyond the boundaries until he just collapses. And here's where he's at. Here he is, like on the heels of the best day of his life. And he says, I've had enough, God. Take my life. I'm no better than my dead ancestors. Just please kill me, God. I'm ready to be done. And he's in this broken, dark place. And he lay down and he went to sleep under a broom tree. And God shows up right in the middle of the unhealth. Right in his lowest moment. And as he was laying there sleeping, an angel touched him and told him, get up and eat. Third thing we have a tendency to do is either eat too much or not enough. We, our, our physical care gets just all out of whack. Here he is, he needs sleep and food, and he's trying to ignore both. And so he gets up, and he eats from the baked bread on the hot stones and the jar of water, and then he just lays back down and goes back to sleep, and, and God lets him sleep. Some of us just need a nap. Like some of us, the last, like we're jerks because we haven't slept. Like some of us think about it like, man, well, when's the last time I got seven or eight hours of sleep? I think I was like nine years old, and I think that was the last time. Yeah, that's a problem. Go to bed. Not like stay in bed in the morning. That's not good. Go to bed. You say, well, I'm not tired. Well, get up at 5 o'clock, and I bet you're tired by 10. You'll probably be tired by 8. You started that habit. Some of you are like, I work all night. Well, sleep all night. You just do what works. You got to get the sleep if you're going to be who you're meant to be. If your emotions are going to be cared for, sleep is a part of it. So he lets him sleep, and he gets him up and eats some more and says, hey, if you're going to take this journey you're about to take, you need food. So eat. And then he goes for 40 days and 40 nights to Mount Sinai, the mountain of God, and he goes into a cave and he goes to sleep. And God shows up there and says, 
Hey, Elijah, what are you doing here? <laughs> You're not supposed to be here. I've got stuff for you to do. What are you doing here? He's like, God, well, I'm here because I've loved you and all of your people stopped loving you. I'm the only one. And God says, here, come here. Come out to the edge of the cave with me. And there's this like fire consuming the mountain. Now God has, God has worked with fire. It didn't start with fire. It started with wind. If I was reading instead of telling you a story, I'd know that. It started with a tornado, wind. Now the word wind in the Old Testament is the same word for spirit. And in the wind that came so hard that rocks fell off, of the mountain, there should have been God, but it says God was not in the wind. And, and then came an earthquake, but God was not in the earthquake. And they, God had been in an earthquake. He'd shaken the mountain before, and, and he was there, but this time he wasn't. And then, then the fire. <laughs> and God had led them through, through the desert with fire, but he wasn't in the fire. Sometimes we don't see God in our emotional unhealth. And we go looking for him in the places we expect to find him, and we still don't feel like we find him. Here's the beauty of this. There's the sound of silence. Now, your Bible probably says whisper, because what's the sound of silence? The best translation is whisper. And God was in the silence. If God is not predictably where we expect him to be, that means we can find him everywhere. If we can't control where he shows up, that means he shows up everywhere in the silence. And here's the beauty of this. Sometimes when he shows up, it feels like he's not there, like silence. Sometimes God is present in a feeling, is a feeling of his absence. You say, well, that doesn't make sense. Well, he's kind of mysterious. He's God. He does things we don't understand. And he asked him again, Elijah, what are you doing here? And he says, I've zealously served the Lord God Almighty. But the people of Israel have broken their covenant with you, torn down their, all your altars, killed all of your, every one of your prophets. I'm the only one left. When we're in a bad place, when our emotions are all out of whack, we feel like the only one. No one understands. We can't talk to anyone. We've left them behind. We're the only one dealing with this. We're the only one hurting. We're the only one confused. We're the only one with questions. We're the only one with doubts. We're the only one. We're the only one. Can't talk to anyone. We've got to hide it. And this is what happens in churches, right? So we come to Jesus and, and, and he, we give him that heart, and the, which is a whole weird thing because he says, your body is my temple. And we're like, here, you stay in the heart or whatever. It, so the weird thing is you start to talk about scriptures and some of those kind of things. The place of your emotions is not your heart, it's your bowels. That's weird. Jesus, come live in my bowels. <laughs> Sorry, I get distracted, I'm tired. Um, so, what we see is that We, we start to let him into little areas of our lives and we feel this kind of spiritual high and things are changing. We can feel him, feel things growing, our character starting to change, but then we hit a wall, right? He starts pushing deep into areas, right? Like he starts to want us to, to deal with that unforgiveness for a parent. 
He starts to want us to, to deal with the wounds of our past. He starts to want to dig into our anger. And we're like, whoa, God. And sometimes we don't even know it, but we hold him out of our emotions. Like, that's not your area. Back to the bowels. Like, we're going we're gonna to hold you out of this area. And what happens is we don't feel like anything is happening in our relationship with Jesus. So we, we, we like, we give up on it. Say, well, maybe it wasn't real. Maybe it was just this high, maybe whatever. And we walk away. Or you stay in church, you fake it. Right? You fake it. You don't even know you don't feel Jesus anymore. You stop letting him go deeper. And so he, you stop feeling him. And, because your emotional health will always be the limit to your spiritual health. They're like two spokes. When one gets loose, the other one gets loose. When one's tight, the other one gets tight. And so we, we fake it. We put up a facade. And we, and we hope that a smile and a hydrant shirt will be enough for people to not ask. And they ask us, how you doing? I'm fine. I'm good. Everything's great. And it's not. But we put up that facade and we hope that nobody notices and we keep it up for so long, this version of ourselves that we hope others people believe we are, that we start to believe it too. And we start to live this lie. We feel like the only ones and we hide. And it's really kind of remarkable the Lord told him, go back the same way you came. We'll get to that in a minute. But he said, go back the same way you came. I've got some people I need you to recruit. First, I want you to stop by Hazel, and I want you to anoint him. He's king of Aram. And then I want you to stop by Jehu. I want you to anoint him king of Israel. And then I want you to go anoint Elisha as a prophet. And anyone who escapes Hazel will be killed by Jehu, and those who escape Jehu will be killed by Elisha. And here's what I want you to know, O Elijah, you're not alone. I've preserved 7,000 others in Israel who have not bowed to Baal. You're not alone. But you're going to have to go back the way you came to find the other people. And so quickly, some keys to emotional health. The first is you know yourself to know God. Know God to know yourself. Aquinas said that the two are so tightly woven together that you cannot separate them. To love God is to receive His love for you. To love God is to believe that He is madly in love with you. To believe that He's for you and not against you. To believe that you are a child created in His image, worthy of His love, and are enough. That shame doesn't define you. That fear doesn't own you. That your past and what has been said to you and done to you is not the determining factor of who you are. That you are loved and that just like Jesus was looked upon by the Father before he had done a single miracle or taught a single lesson. And he's being baptized and the Father speaks to him and he says to him, this is my son. I'm proud of him. He's mine. And he looks at you before you do anything good, before you do anything right, before you do anything loving, before you in the middle of doing the wrong things and says, this one's mine. I love them. And I believe in them. And we start to see ourselves. Now the problem is like Isaiah. Isaiah went into the temple and he sees the Lord high and lifted up. He starts to know God and he sees himself. Both the loved, cherished child 
and the one who has sin and brokenness in him that needs the healing touch of the Father. To know ourselves is to know and own our weakness, our brokenness, our hurts, our fears, our sins, and let God to begin to work in them. And so we've got to know ourselves. The second thing is to break the power of the past, to understand where you came from, to understand your story. It's like he told Elijah, go back to go forward. You got to go back the way you came. You need to go back to your family of origin. See, every one of us learned habits and patterns of dealing with conflict, of managing money, of arguing, of, of, of how we live out family life together, how we talk and think about sex, all of these things. And some of those were healthy and some of them were not. But when we realize we are a child of God in the family of Jesus, we are given a new family with new patterns and we have to learn those patterns. And, but we can't do that unless we go back, unless we go back and look Look at what, that, what happened and how it happened. We look at earthquake moments is what they're called. Those moments, those stories, good and bad in our lives that defined us. When did things change for me? When did I start to look at myself poorly? When did I start to believe in myself? What was good? When did I get afraid? When did I get hurt? What has happened to me that makes me who I am? Because those things... We have to break the power. We learn from them, and they no doubt have shaped us, but they don't determine our future anymore. Because what happens when these things own us, and we continue to repeat patterns, right? Repeat patterns without realizing them. A common pattern that I find in the South is yelling. Right? Like you argue by yelling, and whoever gets the loudest wins. And the goal is to intimidate the other person into shutting up or annoy them so badly they don't want to fight anymore. And we have this pattern, and we don't even realize we carried it into our marriage because we saw it in the marriage of our past. We have all kinds of patterns and things that we do that we don't even realize why we do them because we caught them in our family and carried them forward. We have to break some of those things so that we can know ourselves and love well. That's the key to emotional health, is to know ourselves and love well. So with them to do that, we've got to deal with those emotions. I told you earlier, 66% of people can't even name what emotion they feel. If you're a guy, it's really hard. You're like, I'm um, hungry? Tired? To be honest, horny? That's all I know. I don't, I don't know this sad thing. I know mad. I know mad, yeah. We don't know our emotions, so we can't manage them. But when you can begin to identify what you're actually feeling, you can respond to it instead of letting it control your response. Why am I angry right now? Why am I sad? Why did that bother me? Why am I feeling shame right now? Why am I happy? And respond to it. And here's a really tough one. See, what tends to happen is we get angry, and then we get angry at ourselves for being angry. Or we get sad, and then we get angry at ourselves for being sad. We need to stop and also ask, why do I feel this way about how I feel? Because then we can actually respond to it appropriately. I'm hurting. I'm, I'm sad. I'm angry. But I'm actually not angry as much as I am tired. And I need to go take a nap. And then I won't respond with anger. My fuse will get longer. 
The fourth, which has to do with that nap, is to embrace your limits, not ignore them. Embrace your limits. You have limits. Your body will only go for so long. I have pushed my physical limits to the very edge this weekend. My mental limits are just past the line. And um, I, I mean, I would yawn five times in the last song. I told her, I was like, I think I could stand up there and just fall asleep off the stage. Like, just pushed it to the very edge, and I'm going to collapse tomorrow and recover. Like, but what it was what I was asked to do by God is run and then stop. Run and then stop. But you've got to learn the rhythms by embracing your limits. What are your physical limits? And those change over time. I have discovered that at 40, my limits are much more drastic than they were at 20 or 30 or 35. It's not fun. What are the limits of your emotional energy? What are the limits of your relational energy? What are, what, and what are you doing to protect them? What boundaries do you put in place? I took a job one time at a church that did stuff every night, and I told them I don't do stuff every night. My family is more important than the church. They, at minimum, get four nights, you get three. If you schedule a fourth, I'll skip it. You can choose which one I skip, or I'll just skip the last one you added to the schedule. They said, okay, but I don't think they believed me. It took about three weeks, and they put four things on the schedule for me. And I said, which one do you want me to skip? And they said, none. I said, I'll skip the last one. I'm just telling you now. I told you this when you hired me. They said, no, you won't. I skipped the last one. Because family is more important. You build boundaries around what's important. Your emotions, your physical health, your mental health. If you push past your boundaries, you are going to crash. Period. You're going to be hurting and hurt the people around you every single time. You are not Superman. You are not God. You are a human being. And even we see this with Jesus. He took naps. He went off to be by himself. He realized he had limits. Live in the rhythms of those limits. Spiritual, relational, work, recreation. We talked about it in the very first one. We're created with these rhythms, right? We were created to work and then rest and then to play and to be with God in connection. And just these rhythms of daily life that include a, a weekly day of rest. That include eight hours of sleep. Include healthy, energy-giving food. Include activity. Live in the rhythm. And last, learn the skills of an emotionally mature adult. Like, grow up. Just grow up. Like, I know adulting's hard. Can I give you a secret? It just gets harder. Don't dread it. It gets better, too. What are those? Very quickly. This is the last thing, really. Well, one more after it. Now, it's quick to hear and slow to speak. You realize I don't have to respond to everything that's said to me, especially right this second. You can get angry without hurting anyone. And I'm not just talking about punching them. I mean, like, with your words. You can get angry without hurting anyone. You watch your heart above all else because you realize that everything flows from your heart. You speak the truth in love. It's not loving to be nice and untruthful. In the South, we're good at being nice and terrible at being loving. The church should be great at being loving and speaking the truth in that love. Be a true peacemaker. Not like 
violently, controlling, but the ability to bring people together in understanding and reconciliation, to be the calming presence in a room, to mourn well. Every loss, big and small, takes grieving process. And a mature, emotionally healthy person can, can mourn well. And that doesn't mean there's a time frame and you got to do it in this many days or weeks. It just means that you're aware and intentionally letting yourself grieve and not ignoring or denying or pretending like bad things didn't happen. Refuse to bear false witness. We don't lie about other people to feel better about ourselves. Lastly, the mature, healthy, emotionally mature person will rid themselves of bitterness and rage and envy because those are destructive. Kevin, there's no quick fixes for any of these. We're going to spend four weeks on relationships as one of these folks next, but it's, um, there's no quick fixes. There's no silver bullets, there's no five magic steps to being emotionally healthy. It takes being intentional. It takes being consistent. And it takes being persistent. And not like persist long enough to feel like you persisted. Like never stop trying. Paul put it this way. He says, I don't mean to say that I've already achieved these things. That I've already reached perfection. But I press on. To possess that perfection for which Christ Jesus possessed me. Brought me into his family. No, dear brothers and sisters, I've not achieved it. But I focus on this one thing. Letting go of the past. And looking forward to what lies ahead. I press on to reach the end of the race and receive the heavenly prize for which God through Christ Jesus is calling us. Let's pray. Father, I don't like this uh, message much. I don't want to dig into emotions and deal with this stuff. It's too real. Um, it's too hard, too painful sometimes. I don't like going backwards. I don't like, I, don't, I just don't like any of it. But God, it is the most powerful, life-changing thing I've ever experienced. It changes relationships, character, my connection with you, happiness, joy, success. I mean, all of it. God, so I ask that you would help me to surrender to you, to know you, to let you in, to be able to manage those emotions, to, to live in rhythms that are healthy and will produce emotional health, to, to grow into that emotionally mature adult that you created me to be. And I pray those same things for each of my friends here. Each one in the room, God. May we learn to submit our emotions, our pains, our past, our baggage to you. Would you help us in that? To know ourselves and love you well. Amen. I need to tell you one more thing before you go. When it comes to this, the church has not done well talking about it. Like we're good at the whole fake and being happy thing. Right, faking, faking that everything's okay, and we don't, we don't talk about it. It's not a safe place to, to share struggles or to deal with this stuff. But we said that uh, emotionally mature people speak truth in love. And the, the truth, the truth is we need sometimes to talk to people that we can, 
we can look at the things and the wounds and the, the darkness that we carry, the anxiety, the fears. And sometimes it's not about drawing closer to God or praying those things away or having enough faith. And, and I don't want anybody to feel guilty when you pray and you work and you can't move past something that you need someone else's help to deal with. Sometimes you have to talk to a counselor. And there is no shame in speaking to a counselor. There is no shame in reaching out to that help. It's what Elijah didn't do that he should have done. There's also times when, when chemicals and things in our bodies and our minds change or something happens that moves us into a place where we can't manage what we feel. And we need help. In 2019, as I came to the end of that year, looking back over the year, it was dark. I didn't even realize how dark it was going through it. Until Anita looked at me after the week of Thanksgiving and said, I, I, I just wish I had my husband back. And you know I've shared about my battle with depressions at different times. And depression, and, and I call it, you know, darkness usually when I talk about it. And, and there were not times that were as dark or as deep or as hard in 2019. But there was this heavy, dark, lowness to the whole year. That I wasn't who I was made to be. I wasn't me. And I was fighting it and not winning. I was praying and it wasn't changing. Dealt with sin, dealt with anything I could to try to, God, I need to move past this. And I was on my way to my annual physical on December the 2nd, and he said, you need to tell your doctor. I said, no, no. And he said, yeah, you do. And he said, what question do you always ask the people of Hydrant? God... I don't want to say it. He said, say it. <laughs> and so I said, what is God asking you to do? Do you have the courage to do it? How can I help? And it's time you ask for help. And so I spoke to the, my doctor, and he asked me how long it had been. And I didn't realize how long it had been until he asked that question. It's been over a decade of fighting, mostly quietly, mostly never saying anything. And as I described these, so he said, here's what I want to do. I'm going to start you with a very low dose of an antidepressant. It's one I give to, to 80-pound women and 400-pound guys, and it's not going to rob you of your emotions. I've gotten emotional up here today. He said, it's, um, it's not addictive, and it's super cheap. It's so cheap, it's free at the pharmacy. And we're going to see how it goes. And so December 2nd, I started taking 10 milligrams of Lexapro. Basically, it releases serotonin in your body. And so next Sunday will be two months, and everything is different. Everybody who's close to me can tell a difference. Everybody who works with me, thanks God daily, I talk to my doctor. Everyone who is a part of the team for this event over the weekend. Thanks, God. 
that I had that conversation. I'm not broken or messed up, but I needed help. And the church hasn't always been a safe place to talk about those things. And you need to know Hydrant is a safe place. To be real. To own and deal with your struggles. To, be, to get help. Sometimes it's a pastor. Sometimes it's a counselor. Sometimes it's your doctor. Don't be afraid to ask for help when you need it. Don't be afraid to talk to someone. Do what you have to do. I got your back. This is a safe place. I love you. I believe in you. And I want you to become all that God created you to be. My wife says she got her husband back. My kids can tell a difference. The staff can see it. It's so worth it. Don't be afraid. We're together in this. Go. Have a great week. Enjoy a homemade cookie. We love you. We're glad you're here. We look forward to being with you next week.